Good morning, church. It's good to see you all. Uh, if we haven't had the opportunity to meet yet, my name is Phil. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, it's, I'm just really grateful for the opportunity to open up God's Word together with you this morning. Uh, this week, we'll be continuing our sign series, and we'll be talking about communion. We'll be starting in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, if you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bibles now. And as always, if you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles back in both the entryways on the tables, and you're welcome to grab one of those. And if you just happen to forget your Bible at home, just please put it back after the service so it'll be available for someone next week. Uh, If you don't currently own a Bible, please keep it. Uh, We'd love for you to have it, all right? So last week, Joe talked about confession. And essentially, confession is agreeing with God about our sin and about who Jesus is and what he's done. Okay, agreeing with God's testimony about ourselves and about Jesus. And that is where life begins for us as Christians. It starts with us. We don't realize we need a Savior until we recognize our own sin and how desperate we are for his work. And then when we call upon the name of the Lord, we're agreeing with God about who he is and what he's accomplished for us, what Jesus has done for us. And as we go into communion this week, they're really closely tied. They're really closely connected ideas. And so that's what we'll be talking about this morning as we pick up this week. So what is communion? Communion, also known as the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist, which just means Thanksgiving. Okay, it's just taking the Greek word and making it an English word. Um, is one of the two main sacraments or ordinances of the church. And these two practices, along with baptism, these two things have been practiced by the Christian church for almost 2,000 years. These are the only two things that we all, as Christians, have in common. Now, it might look a little different in different traditions, but these are the two things we've had in common. And communion goes all the way back to when Jesus instituted it the night that he was betrayed, the night before he was crucified. That's where this all began, okay? So communion as a sacrament is a visible portrayal of the gospel through which the Lord in his grace reminds us of the finished work of Christ on the cross and the blessings that follow. So the meal itself was a Passover meal. And it was already, for the Jewish people, rich with meaning because this represented the time when God broke their bonds of slavery in Egypt and freed them and made his covenant with them and made them his own people. Okay, That was what Passover meant to them. And if you remember that first Passover in Egypt, a lamb without blemish was killed. Okay, And then they took the blood of the lamb and they spread it on the doorframe of their homes. And this was so that when the Lord sent the tenth and final plague in Egypt in order to break their bonds of slavery, that the angel of death that would be sent would pass over those homes where it saw the blood on the door frames as it went through the land of Egypt, killing every firstborn male and animal in all of Egypt. This is how the Lord spared the people of Israel was through the Passover. And so... Meanwhile, inside, they were eating the meat of the lamb, and they were eating unleavened bread and some bitter herbs, and all of this was roasted over a fire because they were about to leave in a hurry, okay? They were going to be ushered out in short order after Pharaoh realized what had just happened. He's like, just get out of here. We want you gone, okay? And so all of this will come into play a little bit later as we talk more about these symbols. So the event was the key moment for God's people. 
This was the beginning of their covenant relationship with him. Okay? As a people. Like, the Lord had covenanted with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the way down the line until this point. But this is where, as a people, they recognized who they were in his eyes. And this was the meal that Jesus and his disciples were participating in because this was instituted as an annual feast. They did this every single year, generation to generation to generation, so that they would never forget what God had done for them. And Jesus took this same meal and now added new meaning to these symbols as a new memorial celebration for the people of God to be practiced continually through the ages so that we would never forget what he has done. Okay, so let's read the first recounting of this first Lord's Supper, which is found in Paul's first letter to Corinth, which was written around A.D. 55. Okay, read with me. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and we had given thanks, he broke it, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So what I want to do for us today is give us a little framework to prepare for communion. So that we don't take it in an unworthy manner as Paul's talking about here. Because we don't want what he's talking about here. Drinking, uh, eating and drinking judgment on ourselves. And so it's going to be three letters. They start with the letters R, I, and P. And there are going to be some questions that go along with those for us to kind of process this and think through what the Lord's calling us to do. Okay? The first one is remember. Remember the sacrifice of Jesus. We saw those first two verses in 24 and 25. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. First and foremost, communion is a time to remember. It's a memorial of what Jesus has done for us. Remembering the sacrifice that he endured for our sake. You see, from the time of Passover until Christ's death on the cross, the priests were constantly offering up sacrifices for the forgiveness of the sin of their people. Constantly. And this was because God is a just God. He is holy. He is perfectly righteous and good. And ever since Adam and Eve chose to seek their own position apart from God's provision for them, to kind of get their own standing on their own terms, we have all been affected by sin because we've tried to do the same thing, every one of us. And the book of Romans really lays out for us in chapters 1 through 3 just how hopeless and desperate our situation was. But then in Romans 3, it turns the corner and tells us what God did about it. He says this, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested, though the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift 
through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So in this passage, we find the solution that God ultimately provided for our reconciliation with himself. We find that the way for us to patch things up with God is not by our own doing, not by works of the law, not by trying harder, but by what God did for us. We were dead in our sin, but he stepped in and made the way for us. And so he says that he sent his son to be a sacrifice in our place, a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And that word propitiation, I'd just like to focus on that for just a moment. Uh, the occurrence of this word here in Romans 3.25 is the only time Paul ever used it. And the only other time in the New Testament it's used in this form is in Hebrews 9.5, where it's translated as the mercy seat. And that gives us a little indication of what Jesus was accomplishing through his sacrifice. Okay, so let's go back and let's talk about the mercy seat for a moment. The mercy seat was the cover for the Ark of the Covenant. And uh, you may or may not be old enough to remember Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. That's probably one of the most popular pop culture uh, occurrences of the Ark of the Covenant. Some of you might be too young to remember that. My uh, team likes to remind me that the movies that I consider not old are indeed old. And so, um, you know, like, what movie? So, it's kind of sad. Anyway, so, uh, you see it in this picture above us. Basically, uh, the Ark of the Covenant was where the two tablets of the Ten Commandments were kept, Aaron's budding rod, a jar of manna, and the first Torah scroll that Moses wrote. And Aaron, uh, on the top, the cover, it consisted of two angels with their wings pointed toward one another. Okay, as you see in the picture. And they were covering their faces. And that place where the wings met was called the mercy seat. This is where God dwelt when the people of Israel would bring their sacrifices and offerings into the temple. This is where he resided for them. And it was in the tabernacle before that. So every year, uh, this ark was kept in the, in the Holy of Holies, which was the innermost part of the temple. Okay, And this was not a place that anybody could just walk in. If you walked in, you'd die. Okay, this was serious business. And one time a year, the high priest would be allowed to go into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. Yom Kippur. You may have like seen that word on your calendar. Like, what does Yom Kippur mean? Okay, um, But this is the Day of Atonement. And this was the day that the high priest would enter in to the Holy of Holies with the blood of bulls and goats. And he would offer sacrifices for himself. He'd sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. First for himself, then his household, and the priests, and then all of the people of Israel. And this was how they atoned for the sin of the people. Okay, this was the big day of atonement for them, uh, along with a lot of smaller sacrifices throughout the year. You can read more about the details of how this went in Leviticus chapter 16, if you want to do that at some other time. Uh, and so, as Romans 3, 25 and 26 points out, God would not be a just and righteous judge if he did not punish sin. Okay, he had to deal with sin accordingly, with justice, because he is good. And just think of it this way. Imagine if someone broke into your home, okay, and harmed someone you love or took something that was very important to you and then went before a judge. And the judge is like, you know what? No big deal. Go ahead. Don't worry about it. You're fine. You're free to go. Would you feel like that judge was doing his job? Well, would you feel like he was a good judge? 
Would you feel like justice was being done in that moment? No way. And that just shows us that in order for God to be a good judge, he's got to deal with sin. But because God loves us, because he is so good and gracious to us, he didn't want to leave us in that situation. He didn't want us to have to bear that penalty, that punishment for our sin. So he stepped in and sent Jesus. As the book of Hebrews 9 and 10 tells us, the blood of bulls and goats was not sufficient to completely cleanse humanity from sin. It was never meant to do the job fully. It was meant to basically hold us off until the time and to point forward to the time when Jesus would come and step in in our place for our sin. He was basically deferring our punishment, the full punishment for our sin, passing it over as that verse told us until the right time when Jesus came and bore the punishment for our sin. And in doing that, as Jesus bore the full weight of our sin at the cross, God now is both just because he's upheld righteousness and justice. He has dealt with sin accordingly in full. Nothing is left unaccounted for at the cross. But he's also the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He's the one who makes us righteous. He declares us righteous because Jesus bore the penalty. So basically, if we were in court and standing before the judge, Jesus said, I took their penalty. They're free to go. They're innocent now in terms of the court. Not really innocent. We know better. We know our sin. We know our junk, right? But when God looks at us, he sees us as righteous in Christ. That's the beauty of this word. I love this quote. It says, justification means this miracle, that Christ takes our place and we take his. Jesus took God's wrath against sin, bearing our condemnation at the cross. And in our place, he did that. And then he credits to us his righteousness. So let me say, but I think all of us should be thinking right now, this is ridiculous, that God would do this. It's absurd. We know how undeserving and how unworthy we are of righteousness, of being called righteous. Okay, we know better. But God looks at us and now he sees us through Christ as righteous. Jesus is our mercy seat, our atoning sacrifice, and the righteous wrath of God is satisfied by his precious blood. That of the precious, spotless Lamb of God. So listen to the words of Isaiah foretelling the suffering, the sorrow, the anguish, and the injustice that Jesus experienced in our place. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. And just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Thus, he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. 
but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men, but he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the bounty with the strong. Because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. This is what Jesus did for us. This is how he stepped in and bore our sin. This is what he suffered in our place. How great a salvation, church. Today when we celebrate communion, in just a few moments, we'll be using a slightly different kind of bread. Uh, It's very similar to the unleavened bread that the Hebrews would have eaten that very first Passover meal and the same type of bread that Jesus would have been sharing with his disciples at that last supper. And it's known as matzah. Uh, Today, the reason we're using it, it's because it's a very poignant picture of what Jesus endured for us. And it's an echo of what we just heard from Isaiah 53, 5. First of all, uh, the bread, they didn't have time to let it rise Uh, When they were cooking it, when they were baking it, they had to, they were in a hurry. They had to leave quickly after this. And so the bread was unleavened, so it didn't rise. And throughout the Bible, leaven is representative of sin. Jesus was without sin. Secondly, it was cooked on a grill and roasted over a fire. And the grill left stripes in the bread as it lay there. By his scourging or stripes, we are healed. Next, the bread was punctured because it was cooked only on one side, and for the heat to get through the bread and to cook it thoroughly, it had to be pierced by the cook as it was cooking. He was pierced through for our transgressions. And then finally, as the flame touched the bread, it actually left darkened spots known as bruises. He was crushed or bruised for our iniquities. What a simple but powerful picture of what Jesus endured for us. Every time we eat this unleavened bread, that's the picture for us, church. That's the bread that was broken for us. And along with this unleavened bread, in the Passover they would also drink red wine, which Jesus pointed to as a vivid symbol of his blood that would be poured out for the forgiveness of their sin. So we could be declared righteous before a holy God. So our sin could be atoned for. Now when God sees us, he sees us as covered by the blood of Jesus, washed clean by his finished work. 
not by anything we've done, but because he laid down his life for us. So the first question we should be asking ourselves as we prepare to celebrate the Lord's Supper is, am I taking this bread and cup in remembrance of Jesus' sacrifice? Am I thinking of the suffering that he bore in my place on the cross for my redemption? From there, we move on to identify. We need to identify with Jesus and with one another. Take a look a little earlier in Paul's letter to Corinth in 1 Corinthians 10, 16 to 17. He says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Connecting with remembering Jesus' sacrifice is also identifying with him as a sacrifice for my sin. It is one thing to say, yes, Jesus suffered a horrible, gruesome death on that cross, but it is quite another to say that he did it because of me, because of my sin. My sin led to that cross. Not just our sin, personally. It's mine that led to that cross. And so this means that we're placing all of our hope in Jesus alone for our salvation, not leaving any other outs for that, saying, you know, maybe I could be, just add to it a little bit by being good over here. No, Jesus is the only reason God considers me righteous, not because of anything I'm doing, not because of anything I've done, not because he saw any worth in me other than the fact that he made me and loved me. He did it all. By faith, we receive Christ's sacrifice for our sin and we make it our own and realize it was for us. The Heidelberg Catechism, which basically a catechism is just uh, a teaching manual that would, they would take people through to help them kind of memorize answers to these questions so they could speak to their faith and give good answers uh, for their faith. And it says this, Christ has commanded me to eat of this broken bread and to drink of this cup in memory of him. And therewith has given assurance, first that his body was broken on the cross for me and his blood shed for me, as sure as I see with my eyes the bread broken for me and the cup communicated to me. And further that with his crucified body and shed blood, he himself feeds and nourishes my soul to eternal life. As sure as I take and taste the bread and cup, which are given to me as sure tokens of the body and blood of Christ. That word, that phrase, as sure as. You know, as we partake of this physical bread and cup, those physical realities point us to the spiritual reality of our redemption. And that's the point. It brings it all together for us. We can see it in our hands, and that helps us to connect with what Jesus has done for us. By faith, we see the gift that Jesus has given us. We're not eating the physical body and blood of Jesus. But there is something special about communion. It's because Jesus has ordained this as something that we ought to be doing on a regular basis as his church. And when we participate in the Lord's Supper with our faith focused on Christ and his work for us, we do experience his spiritual presence in a very unique way. And I think this is partly because the spirit within us is resonating with these things. The Holy Spirit is saying, yes, this is good and right and true, and this is something we ought to be doing as a church. We ought to be remembering Christ's sacrifice. I think a similar thing happens when we experience or watch baptism. 
And we see someone come up out of that water. There's some joy that just stirs within us. Like, yes, that person was dead. And now they are alive in Christ. Amen. I think also like when we sing songs that come straight from Scripture or we pray prayers straight from the Word of God, I think there's something that the Spirit does within us to affirm the truth because the Spirit is always testifying to the truth of who Christ is and what He's done. He's spiritually omnipresent at all times, but I think there's something that unique that happens in those times where we can sense His presence in a special way. So it's not because of something magical happening to the elements, but in his grace, the Lord has chosen to make his presence known and felt through communion as we engage it with faith. Identifying with Jesus as a sacrifice for my sin gives me assurance and comfort. He's done everything necessary for my redemption and rescue. And just as he did for the Hebrew people in Exodus, he has broken the bonds of my slavery to sin. He has made his covenant with me as his child, and he has called me his own. Amen. So our first question then under identify is this. Am I identifying with Christ as the once for all sacrifice for my sin? Is my only hope in him? And as we identify with Jesus as the atoning once for all sacrifice for our sins, we also then identify with one another as a group of sinners in need of a savior. And look around you, church. We're all in this together. We are all in the same desperate need for Christ's salvation. And as we partake of this bread and cup, we're all doing the same thing and looking to Jesus and it draws us together. I love this quote by uh, a group of scholars who wrote a book about the Lord's Supper. It says, um, we are the community, I did it again, I skipped right past it, there we go. Uh, we are the community of the redeemed since we are the community of the needy. Hence, there is no basis for pride or self-exaltation in our fellowship. We are not better than anyone in the world. We are beggars who have eaten of the bread of life and our life together stands as a testimony to his gracious work. Another author writes, The Lord's Supper is not merely an individual affair. It is a community or church matter. This is not something we do in private or on our own. This is something that happens when we come together as the church. So Paul's warning... I'm sorry, backing up. Um, If we look back at that passage from chapter 10 at the end of it... Paul says, because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. That one bread is Jesus, and because we're all in the same need of his saving work, as we partake of the bread and cup by faith in that work, we're united together in a very visible way through communion. We have communion not only with Jesus, but with one another as we celebrate this. And I think we often underestimate our connection together through Christ. Uh, Our culture is one that's very individualistic, and we kind of like to separate ourselves from one another and say what I do is unconnected from anybody else. Uh, Paul says this earlier in 1 Corinthians, talking to the church there. He says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So one of the funny things about the English language is... We have the word you, which can mean you, David, or you, church. 
And what Paul means here can be a little unclear. And I think, I mean, I understood it for a long time to mean you, Bill. Uh, but our friends, thankfully, in the South, our brothers and sisters down there, have added a few words to our vocabulary that can help us clarify what Paul means here. So let me read the New Revised Southern Version to you. <laughs> or do y'all not know that y'all's body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within y'all, whom y'all have from God? Y'all are not y'all's own. For y'all were bought with a price. So glorify God in y'all's body. Y'all's one body, one temple of the Holy Spirit. Not a bunch of little tiny temples running around. We are one temple together in the Holy Spirit. We are being built up much like this is a picture of the temple in Israel. We are built up together as spiritual, as a spiritual building together. We are all connected. We are all tied together with the global church. Everyone in the body of Christ is connected and part of one another. And so we often like to think, what does my sin affect anybody else in the church? What, what difference does it make? It's just only affecting me. It's only my issue. Nobody else has to worry about it. Let me, just let me mind my own business. But you're wrong. When I sin, it affects you. And when you sin, it affects all of us. What Paul was talking about in that verse, he was just coming out of talking about sexual immorality and how when someone in the body of Christ committed sexual immorality, they were dragging the entire church body into that. Kind of ups the stakes a little bit, doesn't it? We are connected church and we need one another. We are affected by one another. So Paul's warning about taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner back in verse uh, chapter 11, verse 27 through 29, is referring to the unrepentant self-centeredness of the Corinthians who are ignoring other members of the body. This isn't referring to someone who's struggling with their sin and looking to the cross in repentance. Uh, perfection is not a requirement to come to the table. But what this is referring to is just flagrant, blatant, unrepentant sin, disregarding the word of God. And how it affects the rest of the church. So what that also means is Paul's warning about eating and drinking judgment on oneself applies to that. And so if that's your situation this morning, I would urge you to pass on communion. If you're not in repentance for your sin and just blatantly going about it, that's on you. But that's a pretty stern warning from Paul. I don't know all that that means, all the consequences of that, but I'd urge you to consider it. So that last question for identify is this. How am I identifying with my brothers and sisters in Christ? Am I repenting of my sin and how it affects the body of Christ? Am I considering those in need? Am I seeking to exalt myself or to build others up? Is there a relationship that I need to mend or to reconcile? And finally, we come to proclaim. Proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take a look back at 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In celebrating communion, we are also participating in a proclamation of the gospel to ourselves, to one another, and to anyone who witnesses this celebration that Jesus died for us. 
for our redemption. He has done it all. All our stakes are on him. But also there's an anticipation toward eternity. If we look back at Matthew 26, Jesus said something else when he instituted communion that Matthew recalls. And he says this, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The next time we sit down with Jesus to drink wine will be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Because Jesus is coming again, but not as a suffering servant this next time. He's coming as a conquering king, coming back to claim his bride, the church. And we will sit down with him and celebrate at that great marriage feast of the Lamb. So as we take communion, we're not just thinking about our past or our present, but also our future. Looking forward to that day when we sit down with Jesus and see him face to face and all is made right and he reigns. When our eyes are set on eternity in that way, it changes the way we live. It changes our priorities and our values have to adjust to his And so the question that comes along with proclaim is how are my life and practice proclaiming the gospel of Jesus? Am I living in view of the priorities of eternity or am I living as if this life is all there is? Am I leveraging my life and possessions for the kingdom of God or for my own little kingdom? And I want to close with this. This is Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That day is when Jesus returns. Church, we need one another. We need to remember our hope, and we need one another to remind each other of that hope. We need to come together as the body of Christ Not solo Christians. We are in this together. We need the encouragement of one another. We need each other to bear one another's burdens, to support one another, to walk this life together as we look forward to that day when Jesus comes. We're in this together, church. Jesus has done it all for us, and he's made us one body. He's connected us from all different walks of life. He's brought us together and made us one. We who are not a people are now a people because of Jesus. Communion is a time when we especially remember the price Jesus paid for our redemption. We identify with him as a sacrifice for our sins and with one another as part of the body of Christ. And we proclaim his death until he comes again, looking forward to that day when we sit down with him at that marriage feast. It's going to be a great day, church. It's our past, our present, and our future together all tied up in this one celebration. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the gift that you've given us of communion. It's something that we can participate in on a regular basis to remind one another and to remind ourselves just what you've done for us, how you stepped in 
when we were far from you, when we were separated from you, when we were enemies, you reconciled us to yourself through the sacrifice of your son, Jesus. Lord, we didn't have hope and you gave us hope through Christ. We were not a people and you made us a people through him. Lord, as we go forward, as we celebrate communion every month together as the church, remind us again and again just how much you've done for us and the price that you paid for our redemption. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.